0: I had a lot of songs stuck in my life, but uh, I'll have this one stuck in my mind this week, and there's a lot worse things to have stuck in your mind, and your loving kindness leads me to So, that's pretty awesome. I hope you guys all enjoyed yesterday. It was uh, mid-60s. You got to get outside. We took two walks, so that's pretty awesome. I hope you guys got to enjoy that, but for now, we're going to talk about the Bible, and we're in a series entitled three, uh, in which we're looking at the book of Galatians. This is actually our fifth week that we're in this series, and uh, really, freedom, that is what... The, the epistle of Galatians is all about uh, freedom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we talked about it, and I'm going to continue to talk about it every week. I'll do it briefly, but freedom is a complex, uh, co- complex concept. We find ourselves making free choices that imprison us. And what Paul is telling us, and he's been telling us all throughout this epistle, is that to be truly free we not only have to have the power or the right to be able to do something, but we must also be able to walk away from whatever it is without consequences that we've freely done. In the book of Galatians, Paul is arguing that the only path to freedom is through the gospel. This is a church word, and if you're in church, you hear this often, but the gospel, simply put, just means the good news. The good news or the good news of how Jesus or how God is putting the world back to right through the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel is really the answer to your imagination. When you wonder and you look outside and you think to yourself, or when you watch the news, whichever channel you watch, and you think, what is wrong with this world? The gospel is the answer to that question. It is God's answer to how God is putting the world back to rights through the person of Jesus Christ. And it includes two core concepts. We saw this in week one. First, that God has sent us a savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And second, that we are helpless and in need of a savior. It includes these two concepts, sin and savior. We are helpless and we need a savior. It's almost like the picture Paul is giving us is of a man who is drowning. And a man who is drowning does not need a great teacher. He does not need a better example He doesn't need a book thrown into the water and he doesn't need someone to jump alongside of him and start treading and saying, see, this is what you do. He needs someone to pull him out. And God is saying, that's what Jesus has done. Sure, he was a great teacher. You can read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. It's awesome. Hard to do, but it's awesome. He was certainly a good example. What kind of man could continue in the face of such temptation and in such uh, just kind of all the stupidity around him, continue in such heart and love towards people. He's certainly a good example. But Paul is saying that the gospel is more and that Jesus wasn't just a great teacher, a good example, he certainly was, but he is our savior rescuing us from our sin and we are helpless without him. And although it may not feel like that, Because when we're drowning, and I've never had that experience, praise the Lord. But when we're drowning, it's instantaneous and we realize, like, I need that tube and I need it now, that rescue tube. But our drowning takes a lifetime and we can ignore it. But Paul says the good news of the gospel is that we are drowning in sin. And admitting that is freedom and recognizing that Christ is our Savior. In our second week, we saw that Paul tells us his story it's found for us in Galatians chapter 1 verses 13 through chapter 2 verse 10 and you could go home and read that this afternoon it's awesome or if you're picking us up uh, halfway through the series and you've missed some of them you can always go online and listen to it but Paul tells us his story of how he came to faith in week three we looked at the question, and Paul's kind of continuing his thought on lines with the gospel and how it frees us, and thinking his overarching question behind week three was, What makes me acceptable before God? And a lot of us have asked ourselves that question often. For some of us, maybe we take the God part out and we just ask ourselves, What makes me acceptable? And we have all kinds of answers to that question. Some of us think we're acceptable because we're awesome at our jobs. Some of us think we're awesome students. Some of us think we look really good. I've always struggled with that. Um, That's a joke. (laughs) I'm going to try to diminish those, you know, but uh, that is a joke. Uh, But we have all kinds of things. What makes me acceptable before God? And Paul tells us something that's really freeing. It's not based on you that you're acceptable before God. It is based on Christ. We are made acceptable God, to God through our faith in Jesus Christ and not through how good we look, how good we behave. doesn't matter. We are accepted by God before our faith and because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And in week four, we looked at now that we know that we're accepted before God because of our faith in Christ, what's next? And we saw that we are not only saved by the gospel or accepted by God because of the gospel, but we also grow in our faith through the gospel. We don't, it's not just good news, we believe, and then all of a sudden we go back to the law trying to obey the rules so that we can be accepted. We grow through continually placing our faith in Jesus Christ for every single decision that we make. And so today Paul is going to continue his thought. We're on week five, and we come uh, to, to the logical question that any person would have as they've been going through this. The gospel is good news. I get it. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I'm helpless. I get it. Paul had his story. I get that I'm accepted because of faith, and I, gr- I get that I grow because of faith. But if you've been reading along with us in the Bible Project, you know that the law makes up a lot of the Old Testament. It's kind of hard to get through. It's kind of depressing at times. Uh, A lot of you have asked me questions about it. Some of them I have answers for. To be honest, I don't know everything of why God said what to do in the law. I'm not saying, just so you know, that I haven't heard theories on a lot of it. I've just never heard a theory that emotionally satisfies me completely. And maybe you feel similar as you read through it in the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and uh, soon-to-be Deuteronomy. But what we will see is that the law does serve a role. God didn't give it to Moses some 3000 years ago just for, you know, kicks and giggles. It served a role. It didn't serve the role of making us acceptable before God or allowing us to grow in our faith before God. It didn't ever serve that role. But it did serve a role. And so the question this morning that we have is what role did it serve? Why then did God give us the law? If you've been in church your whole life, I hope this sermon will be just incredibly awesome for you. It's been awesome for me. And if you're new to church, you probably didn't come to church this morning thinking to yourself, I really wish I knew what the Old Testament law is functioning like. However, I promise you'll find it just as fulfilling and freeing. Because once we understand what God was doing through the law, And to this point, Paul is solely focused on what he's not doing. But once we understand that what he is doing, I'm telling you, it changes things. And that's what I'm excited to talk to you about this morning. And so with me, would you turn to Galatians chapter 3? And we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 25. You can follow along with me on uh, the Bibles in front of you. They're the blue books. And it's on page 944, and I I say this often, not every week, but if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, we are a church, and we are generous, and you can always take one of our Bibles. It is not stealing. I just gave it to you. And the good news is I have the authority to do so. So you may have a Bible. It is absolutely free, and the best thing that we can possibly give you is God's Word. Did you know God created us? He wrote down what He wants us to have, and it's all in this book. And I just gave you one for free and you can take it home. So if you start reading this, it changes things. And so let's see what it changes this morning. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 25. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through promise, a promise. Why, then, was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels, and it was entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. It is, is the law... Therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness certainly would have come by that law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. Locked up until the faith that was to come could be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ had come that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. All right, so what is this talking about? I think really the image that I'd like to begin with uh, that kind of sets the framework for this entire passage is the image of settling a will after a deceased loved one. I've never really had this happen. I've had my grandpa die and uh, the grown-ups, you know, at that time went into the room and hashed all those things out. But I've talked to enough people to know that after the death of a loved one, of a family member, can be a terribly grieving time, of course, and we all kind of understand that. Of course, to lose someone that we love is terribly emotionally sad. But not only can it be a sad time, it can also be a time filled with conflict and tension, can it? As people try to resolve some of the necessary questions that need to be answered during this time. Uh, what is the funeral going to look like? Now, that's something I have been intimately involved with, and I've noticed that different family members as I work have different ideas about what it should look like. 90% of the time that goes smooth, 10% of the time it doesn't. People have different ideas about what their loved one would have wanted to hear or sung in the garden or Amazing Grace or both, you know? But there's not only questions of what the funeral looks like, there's questions of who gets what. Perhaps you've been involved in some of those. There's questions of who gets the kids, And it always seems that there is one single little phrase that gets used. It's almost like a trump card in relationship to what should be done. And it is this little phrase This is what he or she would have wanted, yes? This is what he or she would have wanted. Now, for all of us responsible people in the room and any lawyer that might be sitting here, of course, we are thinking to ourselves that is why we implore every single person to make a very detailed will so that they can put in black and white exactly what their wishes are, exactly where the kids go, exactly who gets the grandfather clock and who gets the couch, exactly everything that needs to be established. But no matter how detailed that will is, there always seems to be some things that are disputed. Perhaps the will does not address our father's baseball card collection. Perhaps the will does not address Amazing Grace or in the garden. And there's always this lingering trump card. This is what he or she would have wanted. No matter how specific the will is, there's always someone that tries to argue against it. And this is exactly what Paul is saying is going on In Galatians chapter 3, in fact, his language, his image that he begins with in verse 15, it's an ancient example of a thing that we go through today. Perhaps he had the same problems or experienced them in families. What do you do to settle a will? That's the imagery in verse 15. In fact, in some way, the issue can be summed up in that similar penetrating question. And think about this for a second. I, I, for the past 48 hours, this question has just been uh, kind of going around in my brain. What does God want? You know, we go to the will and we think, what does he or she want? And that gets used as the trump card. But think about it in your heart now. What is it that you believe that God really wants? What does he want? Now, Paul is going to tell us, and we're going we're to work through it all in just a moment, Paul is going to tell us that God's original intent could not be more clear. But in fact, the entire book of Galatians is written to an audience who have gone away from God's original intention, what God wants. There is a group of troublemakers, and you can see on your note sheet, uh, they're called Judaizers. Judaizer is simply a term for a person who insisted that to be a Christian, You had to follow the law of Moses. That's a really simple definition, and it's real sufficient. A Judaizer is a a person who believed that to be a true Christian, you had to follow the law of Moses. And so Paul is writing to an audience, the Galatians, in a region, many churches. Galatia was a region. Galatians, the only book written by Paul to a whole region. And he writes this book to a region of churches who have Judaizers who are telling them they must add the law of Moses to be a Christian and saying to them, that is not God's original intent. They are like the people at the reading of a will that argue for their own agenda on the basis of what the deceased had in mind. But what Paul is saying is that God made a will and he made his original intent very clear And you are disobeying what he set out. And so here, let's look at, real briefly, what is the argument of the Judaizers and what is Paul's counter-argument? In this case, the troublemakers of the Judaizers' argument is this. They are arguing that God's intent is to establish a strong ethnic Israel that excludes uncircumcised Gentiles. That is it in summary. Paul is saying that the Judaizers, and there can be no question this is their intent, Paul is saying that they are trying to establish that they believe and they are teaching that God's original intent was to develop a strong ethnic Israel that excludes uncircumcised Gentiles. Or we might say it broader, Gentiles who do not follow the law of Moses as well. And the basis of their argument is given in what we've been reading in the Bible project. It's given to us in uh, you know Exodus 20 and following, all the way through Deuteronomy. And you've been reading it, and if you've stayed with it, I really, I good job, and keep at it. It's there for a reason. Just keep reading. But they have a pretty strong argument. If I do my math right, they have like four books of the Bible and then a lot of like narrative and uh, prophetic literature that would support a lot of what they are thinking. You can see where they're getting it. Paul is saying, though, that that was never God's original intent. Here's what Paul says his counter argument is, and this is so freeing. Freeing. God's original intent, this is what God wants, it's his will. God's original intent is to bless everyone through faith in Christ. We could even say it in a little different language. And in fact, we could stay a little closer to the language of verse 16 of chapter 3. We could say God's original intent was to make one perfect family through faith in Christ. One perfect family through faith in Christ. And the basis of Paul's argument does not rest on the Mosaic law but in fact, it rests on a promise that was given to a single man. And we see it in verse 17, 430 years prior to Moses giving the law, 430 years prior. it bases it, His argument is based on a promise given to a man, Abraham. And we looked at that promise last week, the Abrahamic covenant, that God originally told Abraham... I would like to restore the world through you and your seed so that all nations of the world would be blessed. Now, this is kind of um, esoteric, so I want to make sure it's as simple as possible. What God really wants, if we are to sit down and start thinking about it, I think if most of us were to stop and we were to think about what does God really want, we would believe he wants my obedience and if we don't give it, he's going to fry us. That is what we often think. But what God really wants, what he put in his will, so to speak, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, is to create one family through faith in Christ. One family. Think about your own families. And sometimes they get fractured. Sometimes they're great. And we have three boys. They're eight, six, and three. My wife and I talk about it every so often. What would happen one day? You know, right now they play together, they do their video games and, you know, run around. What would happen one day if, like, those kids didn't get along and how much that would break our hearts? Do you know, like, that's kind of God's original will too? To create one family through faith in Christ that everyone could be a part of. Think about it with me for a second. The Judaizers' argument is that God's intent is to create a strong ethnic Israel that excludes anyone who doesn't follow the law of Moses, uncircumcised Gentiles. At the very least, it's a fractured people. It is a belief, believing that a certain type of person is more special to God than another type of person. And Paul is saying, that's just not true. We are all so different. We have different thoughts on a lot of things. And we're all sitting in gray chairs, and we have that in common. But if we were to break it down after that, we have different ideas on politics. We have different ideas on faith. We have different ideas on cooking. I'm really coming up against that with my wife lately. I want it to taste awesome. She wants it to be healthy. That's a really simple breakdown on that. But you understand what I'm saying. God wants one Family. And so he proves it in two ways. He says first in verse 17 that I know I'm saying what I'm saying is right because the promise that was given to Abraham of one family that blesses, that everyone in the world can be a part of and that blessing, the blessing of God comes to through that one family, that was given 430 years before the giving of Moses. That's in Genesis chapter 12. If you go and read Genesis chapter 15, you'll see that God not only gave that promise, he ratified that promise in the most unusual and unbreakable way in Genesis 15. And I'll leave it at that, and you can read it this afternoon. That is his desire. And what Paul says in verse 17 is that just because something else came on the scene 430 years later, that does not undo the promise that was given to Abraham. The second thing Paul says, and this is so awesome, He says that the blessings of the promise cannot come through the law. It cannot come. Did you know that promise and law cannot be together? They cannot both work. You cannot receive inheritance or blessing through law and through promise. They are mutually exclusive. If your uncle comes to you and says, I want to leave you a million dollars, if you take care of me in my old age... He is offering you a blessing that you will receive by law if you take care of him in his old age. If your uncle comes to you, verse rather, and says, I want to bless you, I'm going to give you a million dollars, all you have to do is believe it and show up in that room when the will is read and accept your check. Do you understand? It cannot be both through promise and through law. And Paul is saying, The blessing that God wants to give this world will come through promise, the promise given to Abraham, a promise that God will restore this world and make it all right through faith in Jesus Christ. But it cannot also come through law. Do you know how many cruises I have lost out on because I did not believe a promise When I received that teleprompter call, they say, I would like to give you a free cruise. I just hang up on them now. (laughs) One time I believed and one time I did not receive and now I'm jaded. (laughs) So you can miss out on the blessings of promise, but there's only one way to do it. Through a lack of faith or belief. And so God is saying to us, I have a vision of what I want this world to look like. It is not a place where you do exactly what I say at every single moment and I zap you if you don't. That is not God's vision. His vision is one family united under faith in Christ where his loving kindness, I just love it, Chris, leads us to repentance. It's beautiful. And it does not come through law. So then... The obvious question this morning is, <laughs> man, did I use too much of my time doing all of that? What does the law do then? What is its purpose? And Paul has such a simple answer, and it's going to take a little explanation, but once you understand it, man, is it awesome. And here's his answer, and I'll show you right where it comes from in the text. The law was necessary as a quarantine between the time of promise and fulfillment. This is kind of unusual. The law was necessary as a quarantine between the time of promise and fulfillment. Why is it necessary? Well, the text helps us with this, doesn't it? Verse 19. It was added because of transgression until the seed that was promised would come. You see... The text is using uh, temporal language, right? Time-related language. The law was added. This is meaning it wasn't the original intent. It was added for a time. That's the language of until in our text in verse 19. The seed of promise had come. It is a necessary thing, and it's necessary because of sin, you see, if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and read the Abrahamic covenant, you would start to think that God is going to bring his blessings, and he's going to bring them to, the fam- to us all through the family of Abraham. But here is the problem. The, reasons God, the reason God's blessing could not come was because of sin, because of transgression, the text tells us in verse 19. But... Abraham's family bore the same disease that kept the promise from coming. Do you see? It'd be like if there is an incredible disease that's wiping us out and the doctors who are supposed to save us carry the same disease. That's what Paul is saying. The doctors themselves are diseased. And so the law was necessary because the vehicle by which the blessing was to come was they thought not what it was supposed to be. Now, Paul, we know this now because of Galatians chapter 3 and because of verse 16. Paul tells us that the seed that, we, that Abraham is referring to or being told about by, by God is not actually referring to the descendants of Abraham, his family, plural, but is referring to the seed who is Christ, the single. This is for all the people who love grammar. I'm not one of you. But like you go, to Genes- you go to Galatians 3.16 and you say, see, the Bible cares about grammar, which of course it does. I'm just not good at it. But that is why it was necessary, because of the sin of the people who bore the cure. The people bearing the cure actually are infected. And so why is it a quarantine? It's a quarantine because the law is preventing The transgression from piling up and destroying us until the seed would come. This is the language of temporality, until. Now, we might think to ourselves, and if you were reading through the text, as I was reading through it earlier, and you were insightful, and you were seeing it, you are seeing that the language is being used over and over of locked up, put in prison. And you might think to yourself, how can being locked up or being in prison be a good thing? Well, it is if you're in quarantine. If you have a rare disease that nobody knows how to fix and that will infect everybody else, the best news that you could possibly have is to be put in quarantine until they come up with a solution or perhaps until the solution comes. Maybe the solution is in Minneapolis and you are in New York and the bus needs to come. In that time, you know, the medicine bus. Until the medicine bus comes, it's a good idea to stay in quarantine, yeah? The law was a quarantine. A quarantine in between the time of fulfillment and promise. And if it felt at times to the Old Testament people, and perhaps it feels like it today, to some of us who think we have to obey the law as a prison, it's because it was like a prison it locked you up to keep you safe until you came to the realization of the cure. That's for us. For them, until the cure came. Until the cure came. And to make sure that we understand that it is a good thing, Moses or God tells us through Paul in Galatians chapter 3 uh, that it was mediated to us in verse 20 by angels or that the law was given to us through uh, by angels through a mediator, Moses. I don't know if you wanted to communicate how good or true something was, you just say like, Oh, an angel told me. Yeah. It's good. It's not maybe what we would want, but if we were infected with a deadly disease, quarantine is good. And that is the role of the law, not to make us acceptable before God, not to help us grow in our faith, but to keep us safe until the promised seed had come or until we realize the promised seed. Between the time of promise and fulfillment. Now, is the law necessary for us today? And here's the interesting thing. Yes, in verse 25 Now that this faith has come, we no longer need a guardian. You see, in verse 24, the text tells us, so the law was our guardian. If you were to read a bunch of different translations, you'd come up with different things. Schoolmaster, tutor. The word can be used uh, and translated in a bunch of different ways, but the idea is someone who kind of babysits you and takes care of you until you grow up. The law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith, but now that that faith has come, we no longer need a guardian. So if we are going to God over and over by the law and trying to find him to please us, then we just don't need to do that anymore, and we're going to be frustrated. Now, because this text is complex, and I just want to take a few moments as I kind of wrap this talk up and I want to just tell you the takeaways that have meant something to me over the years and throughout this week as I was preparing. If you've been in church uh, for a long time, the rules and the law can seem very burdensome and very, at times, manipulative. But as I've started to process through the text just like this, this, this teaching that the law does not make us acceptable, and it doesn't... Uh, help us grow, it's a quarantine. It's been so freeing to me personally. And I want to tell you three things that it's helped me to understand. First, the Bible is not a storybook, or the Bible is a storybook, it is not a rule book. For some of you, that may tweak you a little bit. But it's just the nature of the Bible. This is kind of an interpretational observation that I've come throughout life, and I can't tell you how much it's helped me. In fact, if we were to look at the Bible as a rule book, we couldn't keep all the rules. Couldn't. If it was a rule book, then we should be able to follow it as such. If it doesn't function that way, then it's just a theory that it's a rule book. But it's not a rule book, it's a story book. In fact, it's a story book of how we are to love God and to love others in our day and our way. And the law... Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is full of things I don't understand. I I, I said that earlier. Some I do, some I don't. I've heard lots of theories on all of them. Never been emotionally satisfied on that, other than to know it was good in its time and it served as a quarantine, but it was never meant to be the long-term solution because God's original intent is to make one family not to create people who obey every single thing out of obligation. The second thing I've realized, however, though, is that when we are freed from the law of Moses, or the law of rules, we start now to understand that there is a greater law. It is a law that is more freeing and more restrictive, and it is the law of love. When Christ talks in the Gospels about how he has summed up The entire law of Moses and the commands, love God and love others. We are given a new law. We could refer to it as the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is the same as the law of love. I mean these in the same terms. And the law of Christ is at both times more restrictive and more freeing. I've used the illustration before, and I'll use it again. If I were to love my wife by the law of rules, it would be a lot easier and a lot less loving. I could come up with my own rules of how to love her. I'm to buy her flowers for her birthday and make her the meal that she wants, which sounds like a good start, yeah. I think I heard an amen, which is kind of nice. Um, I could, I could not watch football on Sundays. I could... Notice I didn't say Saturdays, because I want football on Saturdays. More than on Sundays, interestingly enough. And for our anniversary, I could carve out that whole day and just spend it with her. Now, if this was the law of how I love my wife, I can tell you for sure what I would do. I would buy her flowers, I would make her a meal, I wouldn't watch football on Sundays, and I would carve out our anniversary to do things with her, and then I would do whatever the heck I wanted all the rest of the time. That's the way I am. That's the law of Moses. Do this. The law of love is more restrictive and it's more freeing because if my question is not, all right, here's the rules of how to love my wife, but the question is, how can I love her and do what's best for her and will lead to the greatest intimacy for her and me, then, man, I'm like restricted all the time but in a way that brings me intense and incredible intimacy and joy. Do you see? The law of love is yet at both times more restrictive and more freeing than we could possibly imagine. And I've done some things where I tried to love my, and I'm kind of going with this wife thing, and my wife doesn't mind, so that's another reason I'm so blessed. But I've done loving her by the law at times, and I've done whatever the heck I want at other times. I'm just telling you, it didn't lead to a better life. That was really early in my marriage. I learned pretty quickly that that's not a good way to go. And I stopped, mostly. (laughs) I don't want to be a hypocrite. We get accused of being hypocrites, but if you just admit you make a lot of mistakes, you never can be accused of it, yeah? (laughs) The third thing I've noticed is that while we're still not under the law of Moses, that you and I have a desperate need to understand our own sinfulness and let it push us to Jesus Christ. It is not a message of freedom to say, you are all right just the way you are. It is a message of freedom to say, like, I have sinned, and I want to make it right. Understanding our own sinfulness pushes us towards our need for a Savior, which pushes us to true love. And so as I've processed, like, uh, you know, it is really a big book, you know, this. I just gave you all one, whoever wants it. It's a big book. It takes a long time to read. It's confusing. And we're given so many messages, some by our parents, some of those are explicit, some are not explicit. We're given messages by our churches and our pastors, same thing. Some are explicit, some are implicit. But as I've processed through over years, throughout this week, what does the law really do? It's a storybook, not a rulebook, telling us how we can love God and love others in our day and our way. When we start to see it that way, we understand that it is telling us to live the law of love, which is both restrictive and more freeing, and is not letting off the hook and just telling us, I don't know, Freudian psychology, you are awesome just the way you are, but that you are a sinner in need of a savior, and you are more possibly damaged than you thought, and more loved in spite of it than you could ever dare imagine. And that... (laughs) is unbelievable and freeing. Let me pray for you. Father, I ask that you would open the eyes of of our hearts to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. We are so desperate for your love and your mercy. Help it to lead us to repentance. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.